Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 210 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the haunted house of Marin County. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Today, there are multiple reality TV shows about ghost hunting. On these shows, the ghost hunters go to allegedly haunted locations. They wait until nightfall, run around in the dark, wave electronic gadgets, and shout at the spirits to manifest themselves. But how similar is what you see on these shows to actual paranormal investigations? And how much of it is just hyped-up reality TV nonsense? Well, today we'll be speaking with an actual paranormal investigator and pulling back the curtain on how real investigations proceed. In particular, we'll be talking about a haunted house in Marin County, California. So what do real parapsychological investigators do? What kind of things do they encounter? And what surprising things were discovered about this house in Marin County? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, who are we going to be talking with today? His name is Lloyd Auerbach, and he's been a paranormal field investigator for over 40 years. I've read his books, and he's one of my instructors at the Ryan Education Center. He lives in the Bay Area, which is California jargon for the area in and around San Francisco, and he's a really interesting guy. I wanted to bring him on the show to give listeners a sense of what happens in actual paranormal investigations as opposed to the nonsense they see on ghost hunting TV shows. And I've asked him to both tell us about that and to tell us about a particular case in Marin County that he personally investigated. And why this particular case? Because I think it's really fascinating. And from a storytelling perspective, it has a really surprising twist in it that people will not see coming unless they've read Lloyd's books. I should mention that although this house is reportedly haunted, this will not be a scary story. The actual hauntings that parapsychologists investigate are not at all like what happens in horror movies. And today's mystery will illustrate that point. Uh, The people who reported this haunting did not get injured or even scared, so we will not be trying to build fearful suspense, and sensitive listeners need not worry about that. On the other hand, the house did have a history of criminal activity before the new family moved into it, and we will briefly mention what the police believed some of those crimes to be, but as always, we'll be keeping the discussion clinical, and we won't be going into detail. So how are field investigations different than laboratory work in parapsychology? The big difference is that field phenomena are spontaneous, while laboratory phenomena are not. In a lab setting, you can run tests over and over again under highly controlled conditions to study the phenomenon. So you can really amass a lot of data that could show whether the phenomenon is real and how it works. But in a field setting like someone's house, you can't do that same kind of thing. I mean, for one people, people are for one thing, people are living there and you can't intrude on their lives too much. 
for another, you can't just expect a ghost to show up when you want and do what you want hundreds of times in a row so you can study it. So you're much more dependent on witnesses and what they report about their experiences. You can still do things to try to test what the witnesses report. For example, uh, to find out if there's a natural explanation for the things they're saying happened, but you're much more heavily dependent on witness testimony rather than running highly controlled experimental trials. And investigators may not be 100% sure what the explanation is for what's been reported in a location. They just have to do the best they can with the information they have available. As a result, field settings where spontaneous, unpredictable phenomena are reported are not the best research setting. You you can learn some things from them, but it's not the same as being in a lab. Also, the fundamental purpose of field investigations is usually not doing scientific research, right? Correct. Uh, field investigations tend to have a much more practical purpose. This is especially true in residential cases. People don't call paranormal investigators because they want to contribute to the cause of science. They call because there's something happening in their house that's weird and they don't understand it. Uh, they want it investigated so that they can get some kind of handle on what's happening. And they very often want it stopped because it's bugging them and they don't like what's happening. But since spontaneous paranormal phenomena are not well understood, it can be a matter of trial and error to find a resolution that works for the residents. In fact, in today's interview, we'll be hearing about some innovative ways that have been developed to try to disrupt hauntings. Although in parapsychology, the word haunting has a special meaning. And so disrupting a haunting doesn't mean what you might think. But we'll get to all that. Anything else we should be aware of before we start? We'll be referring to concepts that we've dealt with previously on Mysterious Worlds, such as mediums and psychic phenomena. For more information on those topics, including what I've said about them, listeners can go back and listen to episode 137 on mediums or episode 79 on religion, magic, psychic phenomena and science, or episodes 105 and 106 on St. Thomas Aquinas and the Occult. In those episodes, I've given more of an evaluation of these phenomena, while in this episode, it's going to be more descriptive and less evaluative. It describes what can happen on a paranormal investigation, and in particular, what happened in this case. And listeners can hear what happened and make up their own minds. Excellent. Well, before we get to uh, your interview with Lloyd Auerbach, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make the show possible, including Josh T., Patrick D., Jonathan M., Megan F., and Patrick R. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fearvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by 
Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at DeliverContacts.com. Lloyd Auerbach has a Master's of Science degree in parapsychology. He is the director of the Office of Paranormal Investigations and the president of the Forever Family Foundation. He's been working in parapsychology for over 40 years, focusing on education and field investigation. He's the author or co-author of more than a dozen books, and he teaches parapsychology courses online through the Ryan Education Center. In addition, he is a professional mentalist and a quote-unquote psychic entertainer under the name Professor Paranormal, and he's also a professional chocolatier. Uh, His media appearances on TV, radio, and in print number in the thousands, including The Unexplained, ESPN Sports Center, ABC's The View, Oprah, Larry King Live, and now Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Welcome to the program, Lloyd. Thank you, Jimmy. Nice to be here. Yeah. So so, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? What would you like people to know? You know, besides what you just said? (laughs) Sure. Um, Well, you know, I've been involved in the field of parapsychology. I count, count the start of that as actually my first class at JFK University in the master's program in parapsychology. But really, when it comes right down to it, um, I had sort of a, an involvement before that. I had a parapsychology club I s- helped start in high school uh, where with a couple of teachers. And I got to meet some New York area parapsychologists. We had some lectures. We did some experiments. Didn't do any ghost hunting, uh, but did most of the other kind of more research-oriented stuff that was um, of interest to me at the time. And then in college, besides focusing on the anthropology of the supernatural and magic, which was uh, my focus in cultural anthropology that kind of spills over into parapsychology quite a bit. Um, I also attended a multi-week workshop by John B. Saha and Brenda Dunn on parapsychology, kind of an intro to parapsychology at Mundelein College. Uh, I went to Northwestern outside of Chicago, and I went into that. So I, that's actually how I found out about JFKU's master's program at the time. So I've been around the field for a really long time. and. I ended up really focusing once I got through my graduate studies, I decided that uh, I was not a laboratory research guy. I was more of a field investigations guy. In fact, my first case happened in October of 1979, right into my first course at JFK. Um, And I was also interested and had been interested even before I came into the master's program in an end game of working on education uh, not just at the, at the academic level, but also educating through the media. My family is in television or was in television, uh, most still is to some extent. Uh, my dad was a producer for NBC. My uncle Larry was a director for CBS, ABC, uh, and then eventually was on the board of directors of the, of the Directors Guild of America. And my mother's brother was a radio newscaster in New York. Uh, currently, my one of my brothers works for the Today Show and another has a company that cuts movie trailers. So, you know, I, and I have actually cousins who are in the field. So it's, it's been with me since I was pretty much born. Uh, In fact, I, my first TV appearance apparently wasn't when I was six months old, according to my mom and my dad. So it's, uh, the media has been an important piece of what I've done, which is why I've done so much TV and other media over the years, because I have seen that as a vehicle when done right, and when given the opportunity to say what really happens, to cut through a lot of the misconceptions that people have from scripted shows and movies, especially from those movies that are supposedly based on true stories, and today from the reality shows, which have 
often gone in, in really bizarre directions. So that's been my my thrust. With your uh, background in, inter- in entertainment, you know, family background, that does that also play into your entertainment background? Because as we mentioned, you're a mentalist and a quote unquote psychic entertainer. Now, you don't pr- claim to be particularly psychic beyond right. anybody else, but right. you do have this professor paranormal <laughs> persona that you uh, you do stage magic with and mentalism and so forth. Uh, how does that play into your uh, parapsychological studies? Well, it wasn't really the family background. Um, when I was in college, I dabbled a little bit in stand-up comedy and uh, did that. And, and actually, because of my graduate studies, we had a course at JFK, which I ended up teaching after I graduated, called Creation of Illusions. Uh, when, the one I taught, took was taught by a local magician. And it really was about magic and mentalism and some of the methods of magicians and mentalists that are used by psychic frauds. So it really was to educate us as students and and researchers to be looking for certain things and also to consult magicians when appropriate. Uh, And then I, because I had had a little performing background in college and I started doing magic. Um, Actually, I was bartending my way through grad school. So I did magic at the bar and I liked it. Um, I actually wasn't a mentalist. Until around 1990, 89, I was doing comedy magic in comedy clubs for quite a long time, not as Professor Paranormal. Um, and I was encouraged to be a performer. I have to say that I don't know that I really would have started performing, even though I really enjoyed it as much as I did, except that two people pushed me very hard to do that. One was the late Chuck Onerton, Charles Onerton, who was a major researcher. He was the proponent and major, I guess you could say he was the founder of the Gonsfeld technique, Gonsfeld methodology that has been replicated over and over again in parapsychology. Uh, he felt, felt that I should be make, establishing myself as an actual magician, not just some parapsychologist who knows a little bit about magic. And the other was Marcello Truzzi, who was a sociologist and true skeptic. Um, he was middle of the road, good friend of the field of parapsychology, also a background as a psychic entertainer. And Marcello also pushed me to do the performing because he knew that performers of magic and mentalism learn more about the psychology of deception and the psychology of magic than someone who just reads the books or plays with tricks. Uh, And it was Marcello who actually pushed me in the late 80s into leaving the comedy magic world behind and becoming a mentalist, kind of focusing on that. Although I didn't really leave the comedy behind. Now, you said uh, Mar- Marcello Truzzi is a or was a true skeptic. Uh, yes. What do you mean by that? This was someone who looked at the evidence, number one, and he, though he doubted Psy existed as we think of it, that ESP and PK exist, you know, exist as we think of it. He was open to various ideas about this. Uh, he was um, not someone who approached the subject with an immediate disbelief. Uh, and it was not, he was a sociologist, and it was not really based on, oh, it violates the laws of physics, or it just doesn't make sense. He felt a lot of it made sense. In fact, one of the really interesting things about Marcello, as a skeptic, he co-authored a book on psychic detectives and police who have psychic experiences called The Blue Sense. He wrote it with a uh, mystery writer, Arthur Lyon. And Marcello and I had long conversations about this. He was good friends with some of the, the people who work with the psychics who work with police. And he felt that his his feeling as a skeptic, because, again, he didn't want to acknowledge or wasn't sure that Psy existed, ESP existed, was that at the very least, psychic detectives 
saw the evidence. These people saw the evidence. They could look at evidence and see it differently, like they were wired differently in their brains. And one, one of the metaphors we came up with was you know, most people, when you work on a jigsaw puzzle, you work on it with the picture side up. And you're trying to match the not just the shapes, you're trying to match the images to some extent. Um, well, if you flip those pieces over and they're all the gray side, the cardboard side, the only thing you have to go on at that point is the shape. And yet some people can actually do that, can put a whole jigsaw puzzle together with just those shapes. And Marcello felt that that was kind of what was going on. They would see the evidence or see the location or pick up things from whatever was was presented to them that could be used by police to actually solve the crime. So while the psychic detective may actually point them in the right direction, say what the evidence says to them, uh, might be able to narrow down suspects, they didn't, you know, psychic detectives, like a single detective doesn't necessarily solve the case. You still have to build the case on the evidence. And Marcello was, not again, not only open to this idea, for he encouraged police to work with certain psychic detectives for this reason. Um, so back to uh, back to the magic and mentalism for people who may not be aware, what is the difference between magic and stage magic and mentalism? Uh, people may not be familiar with those with that distinction. Well, I think it's easier to say what mentalism is uh, because I think most people know what stage magic is. And stage magic is the, not the only magic. There's close-up magic. There's kind of there's a, a range. Of, typically, in magic, you distinguish between um, close-up parlor or stand-up, like a stand-up comedian, and stage. And there are certain things you would do on stage that you probably would not. Well, certainly you couldn't do close-up. You couldn't do like a big illusion close-up. Uh, and not all magicians do big illusions. Uh, a lot of magicians only do sleight of hand and do some other similar types of things. Mentalism specifically is about psychic or mind-related activity or effects. We don't like to use the word tricks. Uh, so it's mind reading or thought reading. It is prediction type effects. Many magicians do mental magic. They do it in a magical context. But psychic entertainers will have a particular presentation pathway it could be that they're presenting it as if it's psychic even though we're entertainers uh, or it could be that they're presenting it as these are really interesting psychological things that i'm playing with uh, and then there are other ways to kind of describe the situation but it all has to do with the mind uh, rather than physical effects with the exception that there are some mind over matter effects pk effects that mentalists also do so the metal bending type of things can be done by mentalists. Magicians do that, some, some of that too as well. So it sounds like if, um, if someone were going to use these kind of entertainment techniques to fake a psychic experience, you would use mentalism for ESP-related effects like clairvoyance and precognition and telepathy and then you might use mentalism or conventional magic for psychokinetic effects, mind over matter effects. Would that be well, accurate? Not exactly, because you, there can still be some sleight of hand in mentalism effects. And there can still be some of the same techniques that, that magicians use on a physical basis. You know, when you're doing ESP stuff and prediction things, it's not just... I'm sitting here making a prediction and it's going to come true because some, because of something, something has happened. Something has happened. I'm not going to explain. Um, 
of a physical nature, typically. Some of it is purely psychological. I mean, honestly, um, there's a huge, often argument going and discussion going on. It's not always negative, but it's a or or adversarial. But there is a discussion within the within the psychic entertainment world about giving disclaimers. And there are some people who absolutely insist that psychic entertainers do disclaimers. In fact, magicians often say that mentalists absolutely need to give disclaimers when they never give a disclaimer. And that has to do with the fact that if a mentalism is presented correctly and in a way that seems seems real and seems not boring, there's some boring mentalists out there, then people will often walk away thinking that, that mentalist was really psychic, no matter what that mentalist says. Whereas a magician doing their sleight of hand and either card tricks or other kinds of effects, even big illusions, and suddenly does a prediction effect or a mind reading effect, no one in that audience thinks that magician is psychic. And they don't have to give a disclaimer. That's what their claim is, because they don't give a disclaimer for magic, even though a three-year-old is going to believe that's really magic. So there is this big issue of do people believe it or not? And it boils down to, for most of us, a personal decision and how you want to present it. Um, uh, if it's an entertainment context, if you're on stage at a show, you shouldn't have to give a disclaimer. Like an actor does not give a disclaimer. Uh, Hal Holbrook, who used to play Mark Twain on stage in a one-man show, never gave a disclaimer saying, I am not really Mark Twain. They're actors. It's a show. Uh, so it really depends. But some of my colleagues in the psychic entertainment world present things as psychological oddities or using psychological principles, even though that's not necessarily what they're actually doing. They're still lying um, and give no disclaimer. So because they're uncomfortable with people walking away thinking they're psychic, even though some people do. In um, in. Previously on Mysterious World, I've made a point several times to the uh, listeners that uh, genuine parapsychologists these days will consult with uh, magicians and mentalists to try to find out ways that people could be faking psychic phenomena. In fact, um, uh, my co-host uh, and I, uh, Don Bettinelli, did an, a little short episode of Mysterious World where we actually did a couple of mentalism tricks. Mm -hmm pretending to test our psychic powers and then revealed, uh, you know, that that's what we've been doing as kind of an object lesson. But you've actually been involved with your experience um, as a magician and a mentalist. You've actually uh, had those skills yourself, which you've applied in looking at cases. Is that correct? Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I really got out of being a performer, not just reading the stuff, I'm reading this, reading the vast literature of magic and mentalism helps any investigator at all. Even people who are investigating things that have nothing to do with psychic ability. Um, there is a lot of observational stuff. You learn to, you know, to know, to not just think outside the box. It's like there is no box. That So you're coming at things from very, very different, different angles when you're trying to determine what's actually going on in a situation. Uh, that's been really helpful and, and more helpful because I was a performer and not just somebody, somebody reading the literature. Uh, and I, I feel like this is something I don't encourage everybody to perform, but there are certain principles to understand the psychology here and understanding why things, why people come to these conclusions, these misconceptions are important. I have consulted with some researchers on their controls in the laboratory uh, or other researchers who are doing investigations. And I've been brought in on situations looking at potential psychic fraud as well and have uncovered fraud on occasion. 
but I, I also did learn early on, uh, and this is a lesson that Marcello also kind of drove home. And interestingly enough, another skeptic was trying to, who was truly more of a disbeliever than a skeptic, um, Bob, the late Bob Steiner, who was a good friend of mine. He was another magician. In fact, he was a, at one point in his life, he was the president of the Society of American Magicians. And uh, Bob would often try to, try to convince his his disbelieving skeptic, but the skeptics, the pseudo skeptics, that not everybody who claims to be psychic is dishonest. Um, they may not be psychic because there are people who sincerely believe that they're psychic. Often they're very intuitive and observational, and they've been told they're psychic. So now they hang up a shingle as a psychic, and they can still provide some benefit, but they're not actually psychic. And Bob saw that continuum. And at the other end, I've seen psychics who are incredibly good, but really unethical in their behavior. So there's this continuum. So being in, in and around magic has helped me in that way, whether it's investigating apparitions, hauntings, and poltergeists, the, th the cases where people are actually just simply making mistakes, big issue, um, does, does happen, or in those cases of psychic fraud that have come up. Now, um, you mentioned uh, earlier about the reality shows that exist today, like Ghost Hunters and Ghost Adventures. And that's a lot of people's first uh, impression of what psychic investigations or you know, paranormal field investigations are like. And you mentioned how those shows can kind of go off the rails. How does what you do as a uh paranormal field investigator how is it similar to and different from what people see on those shows and what do you think of those shows well um how it's similar and different so in terms of how it's similar i mean we do go in to places that have reports um although the difference here is you know i get asked all the time about have you been to waverly hill sanitarium have you been to this haunted place I mean, it's like you know, I'm not made of money. I'm not flying around the country uh, for paranormal tourism, which is what most of those so-called investigations are. Um, if I can't, in fact, I did a conference at Eastern State Penitentiary a number of years ago. And this is in, in uh, Philadelphia. And they wanted me when I was, I was speaking at the conference, they also wanted me to lead one of the one of the groups at night that they were doing their investigation. And one of the biggest differences between what we do in my field and what the, is on TV is we don't work in the dark. Uh, the only possible reason to work in the dark is if the only time people experience something is when the lights are out. And even then it's not pitch black in most circumstances. And this is for a number of reasons. One is that doesn't fit the pattern of experiences. Two, there's no evidence. In fact, there's contradictory evidence, significant amount, um, that says that ghosts don't just appear at night. They actually appear throughout the day and with the lights on at night. And the third thing is we're human beings are terrible observers in the dark. I mean, there is so much literature about this, not just in psychology, but also from the magician's perspective. Uh, we have the whole, there's a whole realm of seance work in psychic entertainment where we, the dark is our friend when we're doing performances. So there are these differences in, in terms of I didn't do the piece at Eastern State, number one, because I said I need to have the lights on. But more importantly, I want to talk to a witness <clears throat> and I want to do that with my group. I want, is there a security guard 
somebody who's maintaining the place, who's had an experience. I want to show how we investigate and we don't go to places that are empty. We have to have someone to talk to because without that witness testimony, you have no ghost story. You have rumor, you have folklore, and that can be fun sometimes, but not otherwise. So mainly the biggest difference is that we focus on residential cases where we actually have witnesses and consistent witnesses with some exceptions. And I think those exceptions tend to be haunted restaurants and bars because people are consistently having experiences and occasionally places that pop up uh, that are historical, that do have consistent experience going from uh, people who've come into the place, maintenance people. Uh, there's the USS Hornet here in the Bay Area. Uh, there are there's the Merchant House Museum in New York City. There's a couple of museums in New York City. In fact, there are there's the Whaley House down in Southern California, San Diego, where there are consistent yes. witnesses. In fact, I'm here in San Diego and I plan to do a future episode on the Whaley House. Yeah, that'd be great. I've had somebody who's wanted to do uh, bring me down for an investigation for the Whaley House. He's trying to still trying to negotiate with them for that. So. Cool. Now, you mentioned one um, methodological difference between what you do and what uh, people on ghost hunting shows do, which is that you don't typically work in the dark because you want to see what you're doing. Um, uh, what about all of the gadgets that uh, people see on ghost hunting shows? Do you use gadgets? Do they really detect ghosts? What's going on? So that that was the other piece I was going to get to. You know, we do use gadgets, but the gadgets we use and what and in fact, um, I'm sorry to say I've been told by a number of folks um, who have looked into this that I may be the first person to have used a trifield meter, an EMF meter on TV, in a TV segment. And so uh, I'm kind of sorry <laughs> about that because <laughs> e EMF meaning electromagnetic, electromagnetic field. Fields. Yeah. Yeah. And it's I'm sorry about it because the reason we, we started using electromagnetic field detectors goes back much before I did it. Um, Tony Cornell what, was using one, it, using a form of this, and actually a, a whole range of technology, including thermometers and barometric pressure and, and humidity detectors, essentially environmental sensors. That's what we're interested in, sensors of the environment. Because the reason we use any tech whatsoever is not to detect ghosts. So I'm going to say this very clearly. There is no technology known to human beings right now that can detect ghosts for a number of reasons. One, we wouldn't know if we were detecting a ghost using a tool only because human beings define what a ghost is. We define the experience. Human beings are detectors of apparitions. We're experiencers of that. That's the very definition. You could have ghosts all over the place, but if nobody's ever saw the ghost or felt the ghost, you know, there's, there's no way to say that anything is here. So that's not that's number one. Number two, we use the environmental sensor to determine whether or not there's something connected to the environment that is changing or is unusual in places where people are having these experiences, and especially when people are having these experiences. So those are the reasons we're using them. But there are there is no technology that can detect a ghost or consciousness for that matter. We just there's nothing there yet. And part of it, again. We don't know what we're trying to detect. It's like looking for a radio signal. You're looking for an FM signal and you have an AM radio with you. So um, so you, you do use environmental sensors and you may find an association that is with uh, what people are having as an experience. Right. A correlation. 
a correlation and that can be interesting but it doesn't mean that it is a that it is a genuinely paranormal experience does it Correct. i mean I, you one of your famous cases which i've mentioned before on the show is sometimes i i think you've referred to it or i've heard other people refer to it as the environmental hell case where you had a house <laughs> that had all kinds of interesting readings and no ghosts could you briefly tell us about that yeah, this is a case here in Martinez, California, a number of years ago. And the, the, what they reported were things that you hear from, you know, in the movies sometimes. Uh, noxious odors that were moving through the house. Uh, there is a room in the house that felt off, it felt bad. And you get a headache and dizzy if you stay, stand in one spot. They had shadows appearing out of the corners of their eyes. And they'd get these really weird, anxious feelings from time to time. And then on top of it all, on occasion they would smell those noxious odors and all of a sudden there would be a burst of fire or flame and occasionally it would hit the walls or uh, you, uh, appliances and cause a burn mark. So all, all of this stuff was going on in this place. And it was, as it turned out, uh, you know, there are four people living in the house, by the way. Uh, it was built by uh, an architecture professor at a local university. He, he designed it and he played with some other insulation materials. Mainly, uh, it was actually... Um, foam that was actually pumped into cinder block if you can imagine that so it was an an interesting choice given that the house was situated directly below high tension wires which meant by the way any ghost hunting group that had gone there would have been doing what we did putting our emf sensors away because the high tension wires are giving off huge amounts of electromagnetic field that's that's normal for high tension wires they also had a hum, and it turned out they had a hum at a high level, high pitch, and a low pitch. Uh, low frequency sound can cause people's eyeballs to vibrate at 18 hertz, 18 cycles per second, and cause you to see shadows out of the corner of their eyes. It can also make you feel anxious. Sound can make you feel anxious. In fact, that's why horror movie um, scores, the music, sometimes has a low bass to make you feel more anxious in that in those circumstances. One of my folks actually found that the house was slightly off its foundation, right below the room that people were feeling dizzy. And the reason they felt dizzy and a little off in that room is because it was a little off. The floor was not exactly level. The doors and windows, the door and windows and the closet door were not exactly 90 degrees. But when you, our perception, the way we take the information from our eyes and make sense of it, thought, it was 90 degrees. I mean, you look at it, it's like kind of an illusion, but it, it's a conflict. So that caused some issues there. And then the noxious odors were interesting. Um, one of my, I sent one of my folks to look, what, look at the top of the hill. What was around the area in Martinez? Because there was a hill right directly behind the house. And they went to the top of the hill and they looked down and there's the Martinez landfill. That noxious odor was seeping methane gas which with high static electricity can catch on fire from time to time. And we saw that in another reported case elsewhere. And there was in fact high static electricity. We used some very low tech device. It was a fluorescent light tube and in a high static electric environment, waving it around, it'll actually light up in your hand. It's a very cool magic trick, by the way. And so that static electricity could have been in part generated by the overhead high tension wires. And the foam. <laughs> and the foam, yeah, in the yeah, cinder block. Yeah, it was pumped because actually um, it, it's really styrofoam basically is very, if you've anybody's played with styrofoam, 
it has a lot of static properties to it, static electric properties to it. So one of the things that you did, like in this case, was you had these paranormal reports and you went in to, do, to investigate and you found that and you looked for natural explanations for what was right. happening. And you found out in this case, it was all natural. You didn't have substantial evidence of anything beyond that. Yeah. Now, I will say it was all natural. I wouldn't say it was all normal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See, this is a really interesting thing. When we talk about what's normal and what's not, that was not normal. The average person doesn't run into those things, certainly not that combination of things. And this is why paranormal activity, if you think about that was not normal because it's not common. Psychic experiences may not be common for everyone, but across humanity, they are extremely common. Mm -hmm. And so really, when we talk about the paranormal, we're not talking about something that is para or on the side of normal. They're normal experiences. And what's behind them might be unusual, abnormal, like what happened with this family I just talked about, maybe rare, but not supernatural and certainly not out of the range of human experience. So one of the characteristics of your investigations is you do look for natural causes for things uh, as how, and I know there's a problem defining natural, but uh, you look for non-paranormal causes. It boils down to how do you study something that other things can mimic in people's perceptions without removing those other things? So you have to remove the things that are not psychic or or psychic-related or paranormal-related in order to study the paranormal or that experience, particular experience. And it's because people do make uh, mistakes in their perceptions, in their conclusions, in labeling things. Uh, Again, unless you eliminate those other possibilities, you really don't know what you're dealing with. And so that's the first thing we always do. Uh, One of the biggest differences, uh, the TV show Ghost Hunters made the term debunking very popular amongst ghost hunters, when in fact debunking has an assumption, if you look up the definition, it has an assumption of fraud or fakery. So we are not debunking in most instances. What we are doing is explaining or looking for explanations in order to get to the heart of the matter. Ghost hunting shows also, at least my impression is, they're not always that interested in talking to witnesses, which you are very interested in in your investigations. Well, I mean, most of the shows are about the ghost hunters. They're not really about the case. The situation that the ghost hunters are in, that's the storyline. But the characters are the main thrust of the show. And that's been very clear since the inception of Ghost Adventures. And also ghost hunters. In fact, Pilgrim Productions decided not to use parapsychologists at all uh, or any experts in the field whatsoever because the show was about those guys. It was more dramatic. That's why you saw them having barbecues. And, and there were all sorts of personal elements to the to the art. If you look at the first season, it's a lot more personal about Jason and Grant and everybody else. Uh, and a couple of my colleagues were talked to by Pilgrim before Jason and Grant were talked to. And neither and they did not want to work with the show. Because from what they've told me, Barry Taff is one of them. Uh, they, well, there are two reasons that Barry didn't do the show. One, they were asking, kind of testing him out to see how willing he would be to fake things. And when he said no, that was a mark against him. And the other was they weren't going to pay anything. <laughs> we're not going to pay a salary. Um, that's why you saw on Ghost Hunters, you saw the uh, Roto-Rooter truck the first season. Roto-Rooter had product placement. My understanding is that Jason and Grant were still being paid by Rotor Rooter. 
at, not by the show. In fact, I knew someone else. I met somebody else at a conference a few years ago who was on that show the first season, and he couldn't continue the second season because they still weren't going to pay him the second season, and he couldn't afford to stay on the show. So in terms of accurately representing the field of parapsychology and in terms of um, providing intellect quality intellectual content as opposed to entertaining drama, how would you rate these shows on a scale of one to ten? Which is which? Which is one and which is ten? Uh, ten is good. Uh, in that respect, probably two. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Depending on the show. Some uh-huh. of them won. Um, you know, they're, they're entertainment. They were created, reality TV was created to be entertainment. It was not at all created to be informative or educational. In fact, the networks could care less about education when it comes down to it. Um, and, and the other piece of this is that there really is no TV show that has ever accurately portrayed the process that we would go through. Um, other than at a high level or cliff notes version of it, because it can take many hours, um, depending on the number of interviews that you do and everything else. It, it's just too much to show in half an hour or even an hour for that. Just can't do it. So I don't foresee, I mean, you can, I'll see, I can foresee if somebody was open to it, having a show that was relatively accurate. Let, let's say it wasn't inaccurate, except in the way perhaps it was edited and edited down. So that uh, is a nice turning point then talking about how what actually happens in these experiences um, in these investigations. So let's talk about one in particular. In 1990, you investigated a case in Marin County, California, which is up near the Bay Area where around San Francisco, where you are. Um, How did you become involved in this case? Well, um, when we had our graduate parapsychology program at JFK University, one of the things uh, we had a lot of publicity because of Ghostbusters. Uh, we were the only university in the United States that had a full program. Uh, and uh, I, I, for a, through a series of really interesting timing pieces, uh, there was a story written about me in the um, Oakland Tribune, which was picked up by the Associated Press because it was 1984. Even though it was months after Ghostbusters came out, Ghostbusters was still in the theater months later. And it was picked up by hundreds of newspapers. I did, I did uh, hundreds of radio uh, interviews, as did my colleagues and my on the faculty. But we had been getting cases coming in. Uh, other organizations around the country would say, "Call JFK," uh, especially in the in the California. If you have if you have something going on, the local news media had been talking about our program for quite some time. And so students were going out on an investigation supervised by one or more of the professors at JFK. The program ended around 1987. And without the program there, um, there's still, even though I was still on faculty and I was teaching parapsychology until around 1992, and then the the classes just kind of petered out, I, I thought that there was a need for us to continue having something available to re- address people's questions and cases that might come through. Um, and we were farming out cases to a few other people around the country. Uh, some of the research organizations still had people who do, did investigations. And there were a couple of independent investigators who I got to know who actually knew their stuff that we were kind of, we were farming out to cases to as well. So with a man named Christopher Chacon, who is an, uh, uh, an ex-magician and illusionist, 
He actually worked for David Copperfield for a little while. Um, we started the Office of Paranormal Investigations, and that was essentially a, we had high aspirations, but it was mainly a, a an actual person answering machine, answering service. So people would call and they talked to somebody briefly who was not necessarily educated on the subject, but could do a pre-interview for us. Uh, and then would pass those, I would pick up those messages. And that's how this particular case came to me. Um, I can't recall exactly how Jean or her husband actually um, found out about JFK. I believe it was probably one of their neighbors. That's often how people found out about our program. And if they called JFK, they'd be ported over to the Office of Paranormal Investigations. Okay, so this was a residential case, like a lot of the ones you've done, right. and we're calling uh, the householders Gene and Bill, but those are not their real names, correct? correct? Yeah, and that's typical in a case like this, at least among ethical parapsychologists, you don't, you want to honor people's privacy. So if you talk right. about the case, you use right. pseudonyms, and you also make it clear, these, this, is, this is what we're calling this person, but it's not their real name. That's and right. they, uh, unless, unless the family is okay about it. Right. Yeah. And they also had a couple of children, I understand. Two, uh, two young boys, two and four years old. Okay. So very young children. What were they reporting happening on the property? What were they experiencing? Well, they had just moved from the New York area um, and they had purchased this really cool old Victorian home in Marin. And this is north of San Francisco, um, which was a little over 80 years old. Uh, beautiful house, actually. It was multi, you know, multi, like, I think it was three story, if I recall correctly. And um, they fell in love with this house. It actually had a view of San Francisco. It was kind of high enough on a hill, not as high as some of the other homes, but they could look out and see San Francisco Bay. Uh, and they reported that since they moved in five months, months before, there were um, spots in the home that just didn't feel right. They felt actually bad to them and to the kids. Um, they didn't want to go into this one bedroom that was upstairs. There was some other spots in the, in the, in and around the house that they, that just felt bad. So that was the main thing that they were calling about. Uh, can you come out and check that out? They also did mention up front that on occasion, um, Gene would catch a glimpse of two figures, older people on the porch facing San, the San Francisco Bay in rockers, basically, uh, at usually at twilight, um, and sometimes out of the corner of her eyes, sometimes she'd look directly at them, and then they'd disappear. So that was all going on. That was the main main reports that were coming in. Okay, so they have these places, like the bedroom upstairs in the backyard, and I gather in the garage, where just felt really bad. And then they'd right. also occasionally see, or the the lady of the house would occasionally see this couple sitting on the porch, apparently watching the sunset or enjoying the early mm -hmm. evening or something like that. Now, a lot of people who aren't familiar with parapsychology would look at that and think, oh, those two people on the porch must be ghosts. But there's a distinction in parapsychology that a lot of people aren't aware of between what's called a haunting and what's called an apparition. Um, how are those terms used among parapsychologists? What's the difference between a haunting and an apparition? So what we've we've learned over the years is that there are figures. I mean, you see, see a human figure and that figure is doing the same thing over and over again in a repeating pattern. I mean, some people have talked about the person being stuck in a time loop of some kind, um, but it's a repeating pattern. And it's like a looped video, essentially. That figure that's seen, which may include also furniture from a different time period, 
is an impression or a bit of information, it's data, that is it recorded into that part of the environment, that part of the house, could be recorded into, a device, into an object for that matter. And people, us, we are all a little bit psychic. Some people pick up that information and it gets played back in their perceptions. And it could include audio. So it can, you could hear things in your head. In fact, there are not just visuals, there are just simply audio bits. There can be smells that seem to be connected to a past event in the home. These are all around a past event, and it's not limited to images of deceased people. This is a big difference, generally, as you'll hear tonight, uh, between apparitions and hauntings. Haunting, or what they call residual haunting, it's place memory. It's like the object or the place has recorded a bit of information, which could be from a living person also. Uh, we leave impressions behind, and we have many of you know we have cases on record where somebody saw someone walking down the hall towards them um, again and again, just like over a period of time, and they realized that they were seeing themselves, which is freakier than almost anything else, and that's a recording. So the thing that is important here is that there's no interaction; it's just a recording, as opposed to an apparition, which is a term we use for what people would consider a ghost. The idea that Consciousness, the spirit of someone hangs around after death and is capable of interacting with you, reacting to you, acting towards you. So communicating, perceiving you, you see them, they see you, that kind of thing. So it's a really difference between is it kind of like for those who are old enough, live or memorex in many respects. Okay, so an, an apparition then is when a ghost and where the term comes from is from the same root as appear. So if a ghost or if a ghost appears, whether it's visually or in some other way, right. that would be an apparition. And you've got an interactive personality there. As long where, as it's interactive, right. Yeah. Whereas a, um, a a haunting, the way the term is used in parapsychology, does not imply a ghost or a spirit is there, but is simply some kind of place memory that people are picking up on in one way or another. And those place memories would have been originally laid down by someone who was living, correct? Correct. Just like any movie from the 1930s was made by people who were alive at the time. Okay. They may not be alive now, and we can still watch the movie. Okay. So, so for haunting, th people should think, okay, this is something that was laid down when someone was alive. And it, and it, you know, when people think about things like that, they often think of traumatic things that right. experiences that people may have had. And maybe it's a traumatic experience that laid down that recording. Whereas it's, it's typically, I mean, it's usually a high and emotionally charged piece of history, but not necessarily negative or traumatic. Um, there are positive cases. One of my earliest cases involved um, sound, a sound haunting, an audio haunting of two people um, in a relationship, shall we say. The other thing is that there can be even very neutral elements because we seem we think that this has to do with the Earth's magnetic field. That's the, the first connection. That's one of the reasons we started using magnet, magnetic field detectors. There is evidence that the Earth's magnetic field affects our brains. And not necessarily in a psychic way, but also does affect our psychic performance, our ability to be psychic. And there is a thought that perhaps this information that's imprinted in the environment is caught by the local magnetic field of the Earth, not necessarily some other weird um, field of some kind.
Uh, and there, there are potential ways to test that. It's just that there hasn't been funding for it, unfortunately. So you got the report from this family about the bad spots and the couple on the porch, and you went out and did a field investigation. And what happened on on that occasion? What uh, what what ha- what what happened when you went out to the site? All right. So two of my former students came with me for this. Um, the members of the Office of Paranormal Investigation, a couple of the old faculty members, and former students, parapsychology students, some of the graduates of the program who were in the Bay Area. Uh, and in fact, today, the Office of Paranormal Investigations is as composed of former students of the Rhine Education Center courses as anything else around the country. So we went there and first took a quick tour of the house without being taken around the house, kind of walked around and walked around outside just to get, just to get a general impression. And all three of us actually felt something in in one room upstairs in a hallway right outside the room. Um, we hadn't gone out to the garage or hadn't gone out to the, the backyard yet, but we had gone through the house at that point. Had the, family, down, yeah. had, had the family told you about where they were perceiving No, things. not which room. I knew that there was a bedroom upstairs, and there were several bedrooms upstairs, but I did not know which bedroom it was at all. So um, you were blind to that? Totally blind to that, yeah. I, I mean, I can't say totally because there were, it was a bedroom. So not... 100% blind, not like there's a room in the house. They had told us it was a bedroom. Uh, and then um, they essentially, you know, we interviewed them about how long it's been going on, got the more specifics about what they were experiencing, then um, went out to the backyard uh, and ha- just drew a quick, you know, a rectangle. The whole, the backyard was a rectangle. There wasn't really much out there at that point. And on the rectangle, we, I said to my, to my uh, fellow investigators, because we did not have Gene or, or Bill tell us at all where the spot was. I didn't want to know where the spot was. We walked around the backyard um, separately. So I went out first, came back in the house, and then they each went out separately. And a couple things happened, uh, one of which was we all marked the same spot on the map, on the the rectangle. Second thing was Jean confirmed that that was the spot that she felt as well. Okay, so this is a technique that was or kind of pioneered or popularized by a 20th century parapsychologist named Gertrude Schmeidler, where you would have people who would not know um, who would not know where events had been reported, and you would have them take a map around or you know like a, a map of the house and uh, and mark where they had particular kinds of impressions. And then you would compare where the investigators' impressions were and whether they matched up or not to the to the witnesses who lived in the house. So that's essentially what y'all were doing. And the idea is if the more convergence you see between what between what everybody says in terms of where this where they get these feelings, where they get these impressions, the idea is the more you convergence you see in the in these reports, the more uh, likely it is that there's something there that needs to be investigated, correct? That is correct. And of course, the next thing we would do is try to look for normal explanations for what those feelings, what was generated by those feelings. Uh, We did the same thing in the garage. Again, big rectangle. So it was pretty easy. And again, came up with the same general part of the garage that, that felt the worst. The garage itself just generally felt bad, I have to say. Okay. But there was this part, part of it that felt worse than, than the rest of it. Did you or any of the group sense the couple on the uh, on the porch? No, 
<laughs> no, we did not. We were also not there at twilight. So that might have had something to do with it. Okay. But you yourself did perceive something in addition to, uh, to, to this. What, what did you perceive? So I, you know, over the years, um, I, I used to say when I first got into the field that I was as psychic as a rock. And uh, maybe rocks have psychic ability because I started learning to pay attention to what I was experiencing. And that was partly because my first job, uh, even though I had a couple of experiences when I was um, as a student at, at JFK University in the master's program, when I was working my first job, which was in the education department at the American Society for Psychical Research in New York City, um, we were doing research with a psychic by the name of Alex Tanis, uh, psychic and medium. Uh, in out-of-body experiences, but also Alex and Dr. Osis, the research director, and Donna McCormick, his assistant, would go out on investigations. And Alex had done a lot of investigating as well. And he and I, I had long conversations about things. And, uh, you know, I said, well, you know, sometimes I felt stuff in, in cases and I tend to ignore it because, you know, I'm trying to be the researcher. And Alex said, just looked at me and said, yeah, you don't want to ignore that because that can direct your research, that can direct the investigation, that can help you. Just keep quiet about it. Don't tell anybody until you're done with everybody else. And so I learned to do that. So standing in this one spot in the backyard, I had a mental image. It was clearly not through my eyes. It was this really strong visualization. And I will say, I'm a good visualizer. I can picture things in my head really well. Um, but I didn't get quite enough detail here as I would have liked, but I pictured, uh, I kind of got the impression of a guy in his 20s, a, a, a guy with long blonde hair running from the house, away from the house, and a guy with short dark hair, about in his 20s also, prob probably about that, didn't see their faces though, that's just the impression I got, running after him, catching up with him, they struggled, the guy with the dark hair pulls out a knife and stabs the blonde guy who then falls on the ground in my head, pretty clearly dead. Then an older guy came out, couldn't quite see how old he was, but he was definitely an older, more mature person. And the two living guys dragged him off. That's that's what came into my head. Okay, so you had this mental image of this scene playing itself out where yeah. the young, long-haired, blonde guy gets stabbed to death and then the two other guys drag him off. And on this visit, you were unique in having that impression. That is correct. Uh, neither um, either of the other two folks, neither Suzanne nor Seamoss, got um, any got sort that. of impression like that. Yeah, but it was in the backyard where where the family had been perceiving something bad happened here, or something. Right. Something it was exactly. Only in that. Bad. It was in that spot. I, I, you know, I walked around the whole backyard and I kept coming back to this one spot. And then when I stood in it for probably a good minute is when I had that impression. I didn't have it when I first found the spot, but after I stood in that spot for a bit. Okay. Now, um, one of the things that then happens after you've kind of done this initial data collection is the research phase in an investigation. If you have this report that these things are happening in this house, it's natural to check the records and say, okay, when was this house built? Right. Who used to own it? What do we know about its history? What did uh, you and your team find out when you started looking into those questions? Well, first of all, I want to say that um, Jean herself was really interested in the history of the house. And she, the owner, talk, Jean, yeah, the woman in the, who, who had the, the main person who had the experiences. 
So she had already talked to neighbors and was told that there were neighbors up the street who were related to the original builders of the house. Uh, it turned out there was another house that looked very similar to theirs up the street, kind of around a bend. And she knocked on the door, started talking to them about the house. Um, the family that was living in that other house was directly descended from one of the two bro brothers from Scotland who built the two homes. So in that home up the street, she set, got to know them a little bit. And because they were family, they had the whole history of, the ho of both houses, for that matter, who lived there when they moved in, when they built the house, all of that. So we, we were way ahead of the game with that. Um, however, what we did not know was who the previous owners were between that original Scottish couple that lived in the house and their kids and over the years. So uh, I, under, I understand the home was about 80 years old at this point. And this right. being 1990, that would mean the two Scottish brothers built their two homes around 1910 or so. Yeah, it was actually around 1908, 1909. Mm -hmm. Yeah. OK. Yeah. And, you know, uh, one of the benefits of um, bringing in people um, on your team is to find out, you know, what people who they know and what they can do. And, you know, there is historical research um, finding who the owners of a house are house happen to have been. It's not always it's not as easy as it used to be um, because of privacy regulations. But you can do a search uh, at the county clerk's office uh, or you can do have pay a title company to do the search, a title search for you. Um, usually when we have had to do that, we've had the clients do do the paying of the title search because they are the owners of the home and they are within their rights to do that kind of thing a little more. Uh, but as it happens, Suzanne Gunther um, also had some connections. She was one of the folks who was with me, one of my investigators, had some connections both at the Marin County Sheriff's Department and also in a couple of other areas. So we were able to fill in some of the background um, of the owners of the home. And then the neighbors who had been around a while were able to fill in some as well. Um, we did hear um, some unusual things about the owners. Uh, for example, in the 70s, apparently the house was a house of prostitution owned by one of the apparent prostitutes, but there were others that lived there as well that we heard that from. <clears throat> one of the neighbors has said that that was probably what's going on, but the Marin County Sheriff's Department also kind of confirmed that. And then another piece that we got was that one of uh, the former owner, before the owner who sold them the house, was an attorney who was actually under significant scrutiny by law enforcement and apparently even the California bar, um, they suspected him of drug dealing and uh, that there'd been drug dealing, drug deals going on in the house and, and maybe even selling guns, illegal guns out of the house as well. So, so there was a, uh, a history to the house that might potentially be involved in some of the experiences that people were having. Right. Did you find any natural explanations for these phenomena? And if not, what did you conclude about the experiences that the family was having? Well, we, we did not find any normal explanation or natural explanation for any of the feelings that any of us had, for that matter. Um, and it was, you know, the only piece of ghost hunting technology, if you want to call it that, that I actually had was I did have a trifield, uh, an EMF meter with me. And I will say that there were correlations um, higher than background magnetic readings in those spots, in those negative spots, uh, including in the backyard. Uh, the only way that would have shown up in the backyard with the device that I had, you know, most EMF meters that you see ghost hunters use 
will only pick up a certain range of type of magnetic field. And it's typically the magnetic field, the electromagnetic field given off by technology, <clears throat> not by natural sources. There are natural EMF sources as well. And, and I actually have a device that'll pick up those to some extent. But there's, you know, short of there being wiring running, you know, like cabling that was live wiring running under that spot, or perhaps an underground stream on that spot, which they're clear, they're really, was just that one spot. There would have almost have to have been a, a well, and a well without moving water doesn't generally create a magnetic field, electromagnetic field. Um, sometimes pipes, water through pipes do. But again, we, we didn't, we saw it in this one spot, not in a pathway, which we'd normally see with those other explanations. Nothing in the household, nothing in the garage that could have dealt, you know, done anything here. In fact, we turned the power off in the garage and there was nothing, it didn't affect anything. Okay, so you were thorough in checking for could the wiring in the house or could devices yeah, in the house we, explain We this. did not turn the, the power off throughout the entire house. I have done that in other homes. Mm -hmm. um, and that was for a number of reasons. And it, it just, the way, the, the way that the field seemed to be, where people were feeling things, didn't connect with where the wiring would be in a home at all. Okay, so your conclusions then about these uh, these bad spots and the couple on the porch were what? That this was probably an imprint, especially since the couple on the porch never reacted to anything. And typically those bad spots are almost always hauntings. They're not anything to do with apparitions. Apparitions move around. People move around. Okay. So the basic assessment was that this was a haunted house. You had, yep. you had the bad spots, which were some kind of imprint left from the past, presumably connected with its criminal history or suspected criminal history. And, and, and the couple on the porch, maybe some former residents or something. Yeah. And, you know, actually, I think the impression that even Gene has with the, was because there was an older couple that they were the original owners of the home. That was her impression. Um, we didn't know about who the former owners were at this point. Uh, as much, although as we're kind of finishing up <clears throat> after we decided that this was a haunting, you know, I said, you know, I'd like you to see if you can talk to the neighbors about the history and uh, the people up the street. And that's when I found all the history information that she had, because then she volunteered it that she had already done that. <laughs> so that was a, a big uh, step ahead. But we still needed some <clears throat> some of the information that we had gotten from uh, Marin County Sheriff's Department through Suzanne. Okay. And you also got a report of some additional phenomena or additional experiences that the family was having, which led to a second visit. Um, right. And on the second visit, you had at least you had an additional person with you who is a psychic. And that's one of the things that paranormal investigators do is they sometimes will bring out psychics uh, to help see what impressions they can pick up. What can you tell us about uh, about the psychic that you brought out? I assume you didn't just pick her out of the phone book. No, and, and actually, I, work, in some way. I, I do work with psychics and mediums when I can, uh, whenever I can. Um, so first thing is going back to the additional phenomena. As we were getting ready to leave, Gene said something about, you want, to, want me to tell you about the ghost I see, the kid's ghost. So we then started hearing about this approximately six-year-old girl who, um, they, who, who she found out about from her two kids because they sounded like they were playing with someone when she was in the kitchen and they were in the living room. And she walked out and there's this little girl standing there and the little girl then vanished. 
pretty good sign. E- either she's on, either you've suddenly entered Star Trek, or that was a ghost. If you see right. someone just no, vanish, but there's no sparkling effect. She just yeah. popped out. So uh, probably not not uh, a, tel- a transporter effect. Um, and this happened multiple times. And she, they were not afraid of this girl at all. In fact, they they felt first of all she keeps the kids busy, which is fine. Um, but one of the things I I suggested is that we were going to come back anyway with someone to see about clearing, doing a cleansing, you might say, clearing out those bad spots. And that's something that some psychics can actually do. And I had a, had somebody who could do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it would be interesting to hear more about the apparition. And I want to find out more about that. So actually, one of the things I tasked her with was not only getting more information about the house from the neighbors, from that family, but also any photographs that they can provide or you can find in the house or something else. So you can see if you can identify the little girl as a former resident of the house. That would be helpful. Okay. So um, the person I brought back with me, uh, Suzanne came back with me and uh, met us there, but it was Kathy Reardon, who was a psychic who I had met. Actually, she had been a channeler, um, channeling some uh, interesting entities. Uh, channeling was a big popular phenomenon during the 1980s, uh, where people would channel ancient Atlanteans and aliens and um, a lot of channelers, if they were, of Irish descent would channel someone who from like 300 years ago in Ireland. And Kathy was doing all that. Um, Kathy had had, had not been a psychic all her or a channeler all her life. It had come upon her spontaneously in a workshop on intuition she had gone to. And as we worked together and she worked with John Klimo, who was an expert on channeling, it became clear to her that really was her own unconscious providing these personalities as a way of delivering psychic information. So she really focused on her being psychic, not the entities being that weren't really entities. They were part of her personality, kind of reintegrating that in. And and that's been a question in parapsychology since the study of it began in the 19th century, where you had people from the British and American Societies for Psychical Research working with mediums and saying, okay, well, maybe they're talking to spirits, but maybe this is their own psychic ability, really, right. and they're just interpreting it as I'm getting this from a spirit. Yeah, it's just a lot easier. You know, if somebody is a medium who is picking up a deceased person, there's often information that, that you can, and you, there's ways of doing blinded studies to make sure you're getting information that's not coming from somebody else or from records. Uh, but there's a, an, a different context in that circumstance. So unless, for example, um, Kathy was channeling a guy named Archon from the Pleiades. Okay. And, yeah. I guess they um, speak Greek in I guess they speak Greek in the Pleiades because Archon is a Greek word. Yeah, and the Pleiades were big in UFO community as being the source of UFO, you know. There's also there was also a character from the Andromeda Galaxy that was coming through, which I thought was, you know, two cool. million my two million light years away. That's pretty good, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if you can get that far. Um, and there was some good information that we got from Archon, actually. In fact, I started using EMF detectors because of Archon. Archon mm. suggested the technology. Kathy had a background in computers, by the way. Uh-huh. So there was there was a little bit of tech tech in her her persona as well. Um, but, but, by there this, not, but there was nothing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. I said there was nothing in those characters that would suggest that they were actually real people, real beings. Okay. That this was a facet of her personality. So, and yeah. by this point, she had moved beyond interpreting yeah. her experiences in that way. And you had, um, I'm, I'm guessing, some confidence in her ability. She must have come oh, up with accurate, accurate information to convince you she wasn't just imagining all this. Is that right? She, she had provided 
some really interesting information uh, and in communication at the Moss Beach Distillery restaurant where we were investigating uh, later, but earlier than that, the Banta Inn, which is a case that I did out in Tracy, California. Um, Kathy was, you know, was with us on most of our investigations there, most of our investigative work there. And we had some really good results from what she was picking up. And then I also saw her, you know, she had me invited me to do, to watch some readings that she did. Um, she was picking up some legitimately psychic information. So, um, and she told me she was playing around with energy and wanted to see if she could actually clear the space at the house. Okay. And we'll talk about that when we, when we get to that stage of the story at this point. So she's going to come out to the site with you. What's her degree of awareness or of what's going on versus what's her degree of blindness about the site? Bad spots in the house that need to be cleared. Okay. So that's all she knows. She doesn't know, much it. Doesn't yep. know where they are. Well, but... I mean, she knew they were, were going to Marin County and, and I, I didn't say what town even what we were going to, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, she didn't know where they were in the house or on the no. property. Yeah. No. And so you start driving out there with her and she starts to now, did you ask her to see what she could pick up about the house or did she just start doing that? Because I know she started picking up information about the house on the ride. Yeah. I, I mean, I've always typically asked the psychics in advance if they can just see if they can tune in and get anything at a distance. First. And, okay. And what did she get? She got that there was something in the backyard and she thought there was a murder there. And she started describing a scenario much like I had in my head with not as much detail. <laughs> so she also asked if you yourself had picked up on that murder. Is she, that did. <laughs> she asked me that because I certainly had not told her that. And she knew I wasn't terribly psychic. So that was a real surprise as well. Yeah. And uh, she also uh, suspected, based on the impression she was getting on the car ride, that the house may have had a history involving prostitution. She did pick that up. She also, I mean, one of the other things she did pick up is that she felt like one of the former owners was doing a lot of other illegal stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. And okay. when when she got to the site, what were her impressions there? Did Did her bad spots correspond to other people's? Yep. Sent her through the house, sent her to the garage, walked out with her, sent her to the backyard. Uh, in fact, I sent her out to the backyard and then gave it a couple of minutes and I walked out and she's standing in the spot. OK, um, now the reason or one of the reasons you brought her out was to do this clearing or cleaning um, to and this gets to um, what are sometimes called resolutions, because when people yeah. are having something going on in their house that they don't want, whether it's a, an apparition or a haunting or a poltergeist, frequently they don't want it or they don't want it there. They want it to stop. And in the case of a haunting on the theory that it is a place memory, perhaps connected to magnetism in some way but if it is a place memory then it would be in theory possible to disrupt that recording like Correct. recording over a magnetic tape um and laying down something new that would be you know non-annoying to the residents so what, yeah what, and this is i mean that's something that I, when i had long discussions with alex tanis at the at the aspr about um how how does he do that i mean what do you guys do and one of the things he suggested is, well, first of all, if it's place memory, it's like background noise. So if people live next to a, a busy highway, after a while, you don't hear that noise in the background. It's not disruptive until somebody says to you, how can you sleep with that noise next to you? In which case you hear it again for quite a while. <laughs> um, 
so that's one thing is uh, understanding with place memory can sometimes lead to people just saying ignoring it and just it, it goes away out of their experience even though it's not necessarily disrupted but when they're emotional or feeling you know it's a little bit more difficult so another technique is to record over it with positive vibes you might say um you know they could have had a party and the problem with this is since all of us picked up on these bad spots it would have been interesting to see if they had a party they went to the backyard and how many people avoided that spot? That would have been another level of experiment to try because yeah. that would be my experience in the past of seeing that kind of thing happen. That would be an interesting experiment to perform. I can imagine uh, if if the house really has a bunch of really negative spots in it, that uh, the party might end up like one of Mary's famously bad parties on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Right. <laughs> it could be a real downer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or, or honestly, I think just think people would avoid the spots. Mm -hmm. They would just kind of as if as if they were seeing a pothole or something like that. They wouldn't they would step around it. Um, that's typically what you see. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could also um, essentially have someone who can disrupt the the energy. We don't know really what that really what really it is. Mm -hmm. um, oddly enough, uh, since that time. Uh, and at the suggestion of one of my colleagues, Pam Heath, we since we're getting magnetic readings, we figured, well, why not play with a really intense magnet, magnetic field? And at one case where I was getting, again, place memory, not negative, but one that was bothering, the kind of frustrating for the for the couple. Um, I, at Pam's suggestion, I went out and bought a, a bulk tape eraser at Radio Shack. We all remember Radio Shack. Back when and, it existed, yeah. Uh, yeah, when it existed. And it's just an electromagnet magnet you plug in, and it's really powerful. It's used to erase video and audio cassettes. And I brought it into this one other house, and I waved it in through the field where people were experiencing something. And my readings, after I unplugged the device, the reading, the magnetic readings were back to pretty much the, the baseline we had in the rest of the house. And they didn't experience anything anymore. And I could not tell you why that worked. It should not have worked. Um, we've used very intense little small neodymium magnets, which you can buy in bulk from Amazon really cheaply. I put, I've left those in homes where there is place memory in spots that's not going to bother the pets. And it goes away. Now, this could be a placebo. The people might just simply accept that as kind of ignoring it unconsciously. Mm -hmm. So that's possible too. But the field differences sometimes in our measurements Number one, there's no reason why we should be measuring something unusual there when we've eliminated all the other possibilities. And even if we were, putting magnets down wouldn't get rid of that. Mm -hmm. So there's something else going on here that we're not really understanding. We didn't have that. We had Kathy. Yeah. So before we get to what Kathy did, since we've mentioned these different ways of potentially disrupting a haunting, you know, getting interfering with the recording that is supposed to be there. I know that that you yourself had another uh, experience that seemed to prove successful in which you yourself disrupted a haunting. Um, yeah. <laughs> tell, tell us, tell us about this. And I had, a, had kind of a and, couple of things here. So, and, and by the way, I, I want to mention one of our sister shows on the StarQuest network is secrets of star Wars. Okay. And, well, that's, and that's, that's secrets of star Wars fans will want to listen to this part. So I am, a, I'm a, I'm a comic book fan. Uh, comics are kind of partly why I got into parapsychology. I'm a huge um, comic book fan, too. Yeah, so um, comic book science fiction. I saw Star Wars twice before it opened in Chicago. The original uh, Star Wars. It's the original Star Wars. I actually lucked out, and the only time I ever recalled into a radio station, the force compelled me. 
and I won a ticket. And then the day after I saw it the first time, which was a uh, an early screening, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine whose father worked for the Chicago Tribune, got a free tick, couple free tickets, and his dad didn't want to go, so I went. I saw it twice before it opened. The force was truly with me for Star Wars. <laughs> That's so, cool. Yeah. So we had this hat in this case um, north of, well north of San Francisco in a town called Petaluma, where there there's a couple this family moved into a house. There's a parent, couple parents, and a, the boy was I think ten years old, and his room just felt icky. And he would occasionally get this image in his in his head of his room being packed with boxes, even though it was not, or and a woman kind of pushing her way through the boxes. The previous owner um, had died, uh, not in the house. She was an older woman. Her son was the executor, had sold the house to them. Uh, her son, you know, we actually found out some things about her later on, one of which was that she was a bit of a hoarder and the kids what the the bedroom that was the kids room was one of the places where she stacked all her stuff so he got a really good a really decent impression of what had been in the room before which was interesting so when i had several people with me my the group that came with me at that point i've had several students who are fairly psychic themselves and and as a, as as a result of the impression of the boxes filling up the room around him it even though the room was not small the little boy felt claustrophobic in there he felt closed in and didn't want to stay spent a lot of time in his room yeah mm-hmm. uh and you know one of the people who was with me was a media has developed into a really good medium i had someone else who was really good at sensing emotion and energy. And she was really good in haunting cases. A couple of other folks, you know, it turned out that a lot of the students who've come to my classes locally here in the Bay area had developed into fairly, I wouldn't call them official psychics, but they had a lot of psychic ability. Uh, so they came with me and they, again, we walked through the house it was pretty clear it was the kid's room before we found out about what the, what the boy was actually experiencing in terms of visually uh, they were picking that stuff up. I didn't pick it up. Um, I will say that I felt it felt a little off in that room to me, not like the bad spots at this other house in Marin. It felt off. But one of the things that was kind of cool is that the kid had all these decals on the wall um, of Star Wars Rebels, one of the animated shows. So I immediately felt there's a connection here to Star Wars in some way. Um, So we were going to do have someone like the group do kind of a visual visualization cleansing kind of like what Kathy Reardon did, which we'll talk about. And we were going to leave magnets behind. So I sent, they, they ended up going and talking to the family. And I decided I'm going to try something. And the reason I decided to try this is because I've worked uh, over the years with people who can do PK and have, have tried things with different psychics. And I had psychics tell me, my friend Annette Martin, who did, was not with us on the case, told me to try this, to use a visualization to clear the space. So in my mind, I held a lightsaber and I flicked on the lightsaber and moved it around the room, kind of cutting through the energy like it was tissue paper until it was all gone. And then I walked out of the room and I walked back to my group and I said, you know, we're going to I said, we're going to need to clear that room. Uh, Tanya, would you go back and check the room out? and decide what we want to do. And she walks back there and she'd been there already. She had already felt all this stuff. And she came walking out and looking at me and saying, what did you do? I said, what do you mean? She said, what did you do? And I told her, she said, well, then I don't have to clear it. 
<laughs> so in essence, you did what a Star Wars fan might refer to as a force cleanse on the room. It was totally a force cleanse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't have to strain and move my hand out like that. But <laughs> uh, I will say also one of the things that, you know, there's a there's a tradition in some in some places that around around some cultures that you have a housewarming and housewarming is to leave good vibes behind. Right. We bought this house that we're living in now from from a couple that um, the husband had already been moved back to Thailand. The wife, who was from California, was going to move as soon as they sold the house. If it, you know, we bought the house. We liked the house. We had to repaint it because it, it felt icky. And within a week or two after, we found out why it felt icky. Um, when the sheriff, a sheriff deputy, showed up at the door looking for the previous owners because. He was significantly in debt and left. And basically there were bills overdue. There were other things that were going on. Uh, it was just like, you know, we've had we, for months, we had people, creditors sending letters past due and trying to contact them. And it's like, you know, they're they're in Thailand. I think uh, they started a Christian mission in Thailand. It was very Christian of them to leave. the. They took the money and ran, basically. Uh-huh. Uh, out of, so we had a housewarming and, and one of my friends suggested that we have, because we hadn't painted the walls yet, everybody think of their favorite memory. We played some really good music and had everybody walking around the home and touching the walls with thinking of their favorite happy memories. And I, I mean, it just felt night and day after that. Mm-hmm. And, and as you said, that could be placebo, but it also could be having an actual effect. Right. Either way, it worked. So, yeah. And, and that's always been my attitude towards placebo. As long as it works. That's right. what I care about. Yeah. So let's go back to the uh, haunted house of Marin County. What was it that um, that Kathy did to help with help disrupt the haunting there? So she had a visualization of her own, not a lightsaber. Um, folks who are old enough might remember commercials in the sixties and into the seventies, Ajax commercials of the of household cleanser, not Mister Clean. This was the white tornado yeah. that would spin and- around a kitchen and clean everything up. I, I remember those. I'm old enough that I barely remember those. And we'll have a link to one in the further resources so that listeners right. who are who who have not seen them will be able to get a chance to see what this visualization kind of would have looked like. Yeah. So she did that in the room upstairs, the bedroom and hallway, and it felt good after that. And then she did it in the backyard. And, and by the way, I, got, I have to say that Suzanne and talking to the sheriff's department had asked um, there, there's another piece that comes in here. It asks about a murder, and there, and there's no record of something that was in that neighborhood. Now, if they dragged the body off, there wouldn't have been. There would have been somewhere else. They would have found the body. Yeah, murderers anyway, typically yeah. don't want don't right. want right. the body found, especially on the site where your house is. Right. So, um, so Kathy um, did the spot in the backyard again. So I sent Gene and Bill out there, and it, it felt good. It felt fine, like the rest of the yard. And then we went into the garage. It was just me and Kathy. I turned the power off in the garage. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to see what would happen since I was picking up a higher than background magnetic field reading on the EMF reader. Um, and Kathy does is standing still and doing her yeah. white tornado. And I'm very close to her, which is where she's standing in the center of what I found was, first of all, what she experienced as the worst of the bad spot. Just to uh, to uh, clarify something. So the white tor- the Ajax had this uh, cleanser. It was supposed to be better than others because it had more ammonia. And um, and they would visualize in their commercials this white tornado cleaning stuff. 
And so that's what she's hooking into is she's using right. her own image of this cleansing white tornado to get rid of bad stuff. And now, she, had, she had also gotten an impression before she even started that something that uh, matched up with what we heard from the sheriff's department. And that was she got the impression of people moving boxes in and out of the garage late at night. And this is something we also found out from Gene. Um, some of the neighbors had been very suspicious of this guy. Uh, and there were rumors of him selling illegal guns and drugs, as I mentioned earlier. So she was picking up on that. And I hadn't told her anything about what Suzanne had uh, had actually found out from the sheriff's department. So she was getting that impression right off the bat that that was what caused the bag bad spot in the garage. So she's doing her white tornado thing. And, and, and you got a reading on your EMF meter before she did the cleansing and it yes. was significantly higher than normal background. Uh, I believe you said normal background in, in a, a class lecture uh, that normal background would be like a one or a two on the EMF. Usually meter. from zero to 1.5. Okay. Yeah, and how was, big, how big was this? Uh, in the very center of, you know, like the hot, where you felt the worst, it was over 10, I think it was 12 milligauss, if I recall correctly. So this was much, much larger than normal, and there was yeah. no wiring that would explain this. Well, I mean, we tur I turned the power off to the, to the garage. Right. So it couldn't be the, couldn't be yeah. the wiring. Yeah. No, it, it was not the wiring. Yeah. And there was nothing else magnetic or, or, or operating electrically that could have put out that field as well. Mm -hmm. um, so... I watched as the as Kathy's doing her visualization, I'm watching the needle slowly go back towards zero. Mm -hmm. And when she finished, it was 0.5, which is about it's within the normal range. So this That's that, was, interesting. that yeah. was very interesting to me. And it also felt good. So if it was a placebo, it was a pretty interesting placebo. It, indeed, it, it seemed to have environmental effects. Yeah. So, um, so you then go back into the house after the cleansing. And by the way, other people I gathered who, uh, who had not witnessed any of this cleansing later came in and said that they felt that they, that what they had previously sensed was, was also gone as well. Is that accurate? That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. She, you know, over the last next couple of months, she told me she had friends over and, you know, they had always talked about the bad spots and she said, oh, go, go check them out now, you know. So cool. Um, so after Kathy gets done with the visualization, you go back into the house and uh, Jean, the homeowner, has uh, some uh, photographs that she's found after you asked her to do some more research. Right. So what so did first those I should, reveal? I should mention that Kathy did not, you know, I did tell Kathy that they felt there might also be a ghost in the house, an apparition in the house. And Kathy was not getting anything like that at the time, which is not unusual, honestly. If you're dealing with an actual apparition and the apparition isn't present, a psychic is not going to pick up the apparition. So that wasn't anything that I thought much of. Oh, by the way, before I forget, um, did Kathy try to disrupt the old couple on the porch? She did not, mm -hmm. uh, partly because, you know, she walked out there and again, she did feel something. Um, none of us felt like it was a bad spot. She did feel, and she did say, in fact, that she felt like the, there was an impression of the original owners in their later age. So that's without actually knowing there was anything. But she didn't really make a big deal about that because Jean didn't make a big deal about that. And Jean didn't necessarily want that gone. 
Okay. Yeah. If it's some, so, you know, an imprint of the former owners enjoying a sunset isn't really yeah. that disruptive. And it felt homey for them knowing that the original owners were kind of leaving something behind. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what did the, uh, what did you find out uh, next? So uh, Gene had found some photo, had gotten some photographs of the original owner um, and their kids. And when she looked at these, this one picture that she had, it was a clear picture of the two little girls on a swing set. And she told me, she, she takes the picture, she says, it's this one. Here's who I'm seeing. And she was able to have, she already had the names of the two little girls. So she had that. Now, we then handed to Kathy and said, you know, I told Kathy, it's a little girl that's being seen. We filled her in a little bit about this. And Kathy's looking at the picture. And sometimes psychics, you know, say that they can tell if a person is living or dead from a photograph. And the one that um, Jean pointed to, Kathy said, she's not dead. I'm not getting that feeling that she's dead. Okay. Also, in the photographs, they were able to identify the the couple that was sitting on the porch, right? Yes, yes. And in fact, um, at, at a younger age, the original couple, the, the woman who was the mother of those two little girls, the wife of the original builder, um, I, I consider this a major, major coincidence, but Jean wore glasses. Without her glasses, she was like a 90% match to looking like the mother from back then. And that might have played some role in her ability to pick up on this. It might have. Um, I mean, her, her self-image of herself might connect to. It might connect to that. I, yeah. I tend to think that that, as you'll hear, it, it connected to the little girl or mm -hmm. to who the little girl was more than it connected for Jean. Yeah. Now, in terms of so they, they found in the photos of what looked like the people they'd been seeing on the porch, only they looked older on the porch than they did in the photos. And they turned out to be some of the some of the previous. Uh, they were the original owners. builder owners. Yeah. Okay, so one of the two Scottish brothers and his wife. Right, correct. Okay. Um, and then in terms of the little girl, now you mentioned that uh, Jean had been seeing uh, the little girl play with her two-year-old and her four-year-old boys. Um, I've also heard you mention that she reported, like, when she would get in the car with the boys to go somewhere, the little girl would get in the car, too. And then as they're going down the street, the little girl vanishes. Yes, yeah, so and, Jean, was, Jean was not worried about all about the little girl. The little girl acknowledged her, kind of um, would wave at her. And, and after the first time of vanishing, it seemed like the girl was getting more comfortable with being around Jean. In mm -hmm. fact, Jean did report also uh, that on occasion they'd be taking the kids somewhere and, and telling the little girl, look, we have to stop playing now because we got to take the boys. Ex and the little girl would follow and get into the station wagon with them. And they'd drive down the, the, the street and the little girl would not be in the car. Kind of like the vanishing hitchhiker kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, also, there was one time that um, the little girl got up on the couch and when Jean was sitting on the couch in the living room and got in her lap. As she was reading. As she was reading. And Jean said it was very strange. She could see, and it, it didn't exactly feel like a person, but she had this really odd feeling that somebody was sitting in her lap. Now, did she, was she seeing a mental image of the little girl only, or was, did, it, did she it, seem it was, to see her with her physical eyes? It seemed external to her, which is the case with most apparitions for most people. That it's, um, I like to you know, say, you know, just how when you're using... A virtual uh, service like Zoom or a StreamYard, and you can put a virtual background behind you using a green screen. Mm -hmm. Think of the reverse, where 
your perception is actually the reality and the green screen of these these entities that are superimposed into your into your background. Okay, but they look real to you. They don't look yeah, like uh, transparent you know, most, or mostly apparitions tend to look fully 3D and solid. There are occasions where they are out of focus. They're fuzzy to people. Um, there are cases where someone is seeing the apparition very clearly. Someone else is seeing a very kind of like an outline or silhouette, and somebody else is seeing kind of a dark shape in the exact same spot. And it may be the pers- the reception. Think of it as the the receiver is not doing well in that mm. sense. Um, but also, one of the things is in general with apparitions with across the board, the majority of apparitions are short-lived. They don't really appear very often. They often are not seen below their knees or much below their knees, like the feet are missing. But that's a self-image thing. I mean, if you're dead and if you think of yourself right now, picture yourself in your head. Uh, And I've done a lot of surveying of people, uh, including large college audiences and finding out only about 5% when they picture themselves, think of themselves down to their feet and what their shoes were. And of those that 5%, the majority of them buy a lot of shoes. I don't buy a lot of shoes, but I wear ostrich skin cowboy boots, so I'm aware uh, of my sure feet. You, you would think of yourself down to your feet. Yeah. They're kind of expensive, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so here comes the twist that I promised the audience. Uh, what uh, What did you find out about the little girl and who she was? So Jean took the picture up to the you know the family up the street, and because she had gotten the picture from them. She she had had a picture of the two little girls and said, this is the one I'm seeing. And then Kathy says, yeah, but I don't I'm not getting the feeling that she's dead. I don't think this is a ghost. Right. And she'd already talked to the couple, the the family up the street about there being, you know, a ghost and all this stuff going on that was down there. And they were okay with that. I mean, they didn't really balk or think it was crazy or anything like that. So she went back up and she said, "Okay, this is the ghost that I'm this is the person I'm seeing. And they looked at her and said, yeah, that's not possible. She's upstairs. She was um, a daughter of the original owners of the house down the street. And as family, they felt, you know, she was an aunt. So she felt very, they felt very compelled to connect, to, to help her. She was in home hospice care, in a bedroom upstairs, and still alive, although in her early 90s. And she was dying of cancer. She was dying of cancer. That is correct. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so Jean, you know, um, brought that back to us and we had to go back and forth quite a bit to get more information about what was actually going on. Mm -hmm. So now this is something that a lot of people don't think about the idea of an apparition, not involving a ghost, but a living person. But actually this is something that there are a lot of reports of Uh, people may be familiar with um, deathbed experiences where someone is in the process of dying or is otherwise in great danger and or great distress and their loved ones may see them. So it's like an uh, and these are sometimes called crisis apparitions. Somebody is in Correct. crisis and and their loved ones seem to see them even, and then later learn, oh, my relative just died or my relative was in this real trouble spot. Um, but it's not always uh, it's not always a crisis apparition. Well, well, I mean, a crisis apparition really happens when the person who's being seen is in crisis. Right. That they are. Um, it's almost like they're reaching out to get help or something mm-hmm. else. They may be, they actually may be in a coma. They could be psychologically really put upon. Most often it's physical trauma that's happening and they tend to be unconscious or sleeping or something else. 
Mm-hmm. <clears throat> There's a really a lovely movie, a comedy, one of my favorite ghost movies. It's called Just Like Heaven. It is now on Netflix. Mark Ruffalo um, and some other recognizable folks are in that as well. And uh, I think, uh, you know, it's a woman who's in a coma who appears as a ghost to her old apartment. And the guy's like, yeah, you're not. A, you, what are you talking about? It's my apartment. And she's not aware that she's still alive. OK, there was a terrible Bill Cosby movie, which was similar, called Ghost Dad years ago. Mm. I remember the advertising for that. Yeah, that was not a good movie. <laughs> so it, and oh, I also wanted to mention. So this is also something that has been studied for a long time. Back in 1886, there was a two volume work and they're big volumes. But there's a it was a two volume work that came out from the British uh, Society for Psychical Research called Phantasms of the Living. Correct. Yeah. That that dealt with this kind of phenomenon. They, they investigated cases where had been reported to them uh, extensively to kind of confirm what they could. And actually, Phantasms of the Living, you can get the two volumes on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been reprinted. We'll have uh, links to them. them. You can also get them free from the Internet Archive if you want to just download mm-hmm. it that way, too. But they're really there's over seven, there's a little over 700 cases that are very fascinating to read. Uh, and there are a number of cases in our literature of living apparitions, people who are alive and still projecting out. And sometimes it's when people are having out-of-body experiences, they're seen at the other end where they visit. Uh, But most of these tend to be crisis apparitions of some kind. Mm -hmm. So it looked like that's what, uh, that you had a living apparition in this case. What did you, what did you find out upon further investigation? Well, um, I had um, Gene do a little bit more talking to the family up the street because at that point we were we had not had that connection to them, and uh, she was given permission to talk to the nurse who was um, the, the day nurse and they had home hospice care, and Gene had taken down some notes after the first visit that we had. She had started taking notes of what she could when she could remember that the ghost had been appearing to the kids and whatever she, she could put down in kind of a journal format, a chronology. And then from that point afterwards, anytime she appeared, she would note down the times on that as well. So she talked to the nurse about it. And the, um, the nurse basically said that she was in and out of consciousness. I mean, she was on some pain meds and she was sleeping a lot and not always fully conscious. But she, when she was conscious, she was pretty, pretty lucid. And she would often talk about having dreams of visiting the kids and the nice lady who looked like her mother down the street. That's what the nurse said. So Jean um, was able to compare some of the times that she was seeing the apparition, show those to the nurse. And the nurse had a log of when uh, when Mary was awake and when she was sleeping. And the times that they saw the apparition all coincided with times that Mary was asleep, unconscious, essentially. So that's pretty significant confirmation. You have um, you have the, Mary is what we're calling the the lady who's in hospice care, and when she's she's asleep, and then she she'll wake up and tell the nurse, "Oh, I was just at my childhood home right. visiting with the nice family who now lives there, and the woman looks like my mom, which you indicated without her glasses, Jean did yeah. look like her mom, and." Um, and then it turns out that the that when they check the times, the times when the living apparition would appear and play with the boys and so forth was when the nurse had a record of Mary being asleep. So it looks right. like she's she's projecting an, an apparition of herself 
while she's asleep. Correct. That's right. Um, eventually, actually, Mary, uh, Mary, Jean was given permission to go up and, and meet with Jean. And Jean uh, was recognized mm-hmm. as the lady who looks like my mom. My mom. Um, at, at one point, it's something I actually didn't put in my book. At some point, the two boys were brought up to meet Mary. And Mary identified them by name. Yeah, that's now, very significant confirmation. Yeah, you know, that's confirmation. The one thing I, I never was able to confirm, however, from Jean was whether or not in, in the initial conversation she had with Mary, did she happen to mention the boys' names? Mm. So that's always something I've wondered about. But, you know, there was this feeling the boys were confused from mm. what Mary, what uh, Jean had told me. Yeah, because they're only two and four. They're only two and four, and they were confused. But it only took a couple of moments, apparently, again, according to Gene and the nurse, uh, when I got to talk to the nurse, that the boys understood what was going on. This two-year-old actually understood. This was amazing to me. But they knew that the girl was her, was was actually uh, Mary. And Mary, you know, in the conversation Gene had with Mary, um, she was talking to Mary about appearing as a little girl. And Mary said, you know, she because when Mary was alive in that house, she would not have been six years years old. She would have moved in when she was about 10, maybe 11. So there is this issue of, you know, she's appearing as a six year old, but she was not even in the house when she was six. Mm-hmm. But that's how she wanted to relate to the kids. Yeah. So I know uh, that some listeners will be wondering about this. So Mary is an adult woman. She's in her 90s or around 90. And yet when she projects herself to these kids, according to, you know, what, according to the experiences, um, she's she's appearing as six years old. Why would that happen? Why would she appear as as being six years old? Well, if she wanted to play with the kids, a 92 year old ghost is not going to be able to play with the kids. It probably scare them a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so. She she also was talking about, according to Jean uh, and the nurse who was there present, she would talk about wanting to be back at the house when she was a child, because that's some of her favorite memories. Mm-hmm. And apparently a 10 year old is still too old to play with a two and four year old. Mm-hmm. So she thought of herself as much younger. She she kind of more related as a much younger kid. Now, I understand that she did at one point that uh, that Mary did, or I should say Jean at one point reported Mary appearing to her as an adult. Can you tell yeah. us about that? Yeah, Mary, uh, Jean called me up and said, look, you know, I just saw Mary um, appearing to me. She looked like she, number one, she was looked like she does now. She's 90, you know, 90 years old. And she looks like she's in a lot of pain. And she wasn't saying anything. It was, it was just like pain is what she got. And then she disappeared. It was a very fast, relatively quick thing. So she said, what do I do? I said, I want you to call the nurse and I want you to ask the nurse if her pain meds have changed or if she's taken a turn for the worse, one or the other. And so Jean calls me back a few minutes later and says, yeah, the the nurse says um, they just are trying these different pain medications on her. And I said, well, you know, maybe the nurse should talk to the doctor because this may be a sign that the pain meds aren't working properly. So Jean called the nurse back and said, look, talk to the doctor because, you know, and she told the nurse what was going on the first time she called her and the nurse talked to the doctor and the doctor went back to the old pain meds and Mary and that then the, the little girl appeared again. 
Okay, so this looks like a one-time experience where that was maybe, one-time experience. Yeah. yeah, where where maybe she was not manifesting as a little girl because she was in additional pain because of the pain meds cha- having been changed. Might have been some kind of a cry for help while she's uh, unconscious. That would be a true. I mean, in this case, this was truly a crisis apparition. Mm-hmm. And then she went back to appearing as a little girl after the pain meds were restored. Right. So, um, you know, obviously she's. It, since she's in hospice, she's she's very ill, and she's spending a lot of uh, time asleep. I know when when my wife uh, was uh, dying of cancer, she was on morphine, and there was a concern that she may just kind of sleep the rest of her life away. Mm-hmm. Um, were there concerns like that in this case? There were concerns like this, like that, and at one point, um, Jean told me that she had decided to tell the little girl and then go up and talk to Mary about really focusing her energy on being present in her body to see if she could fight it. And she did that. And uh, the little girl never appeared again. And Mary was, uh, I gather more conscious and alert during that time. She was not as, not asleep as much as she's still sleeping. Of course. Mm -hmm. But she was much more um, conversational in the family and much more present and much more, much more awake mm-hmm. more of the time. So she got to spend some additional time with her own loved ones and so right. forth. Right. Okay. So uh, what happened when Mary passed? Was there anything of, of particular note? No, I, you know, I think uh, Jean told me that he had called me and said that she passed away. It was months later. And, and um, how, did, how did they know? Did they did they hear from the other family? Oh, it was her from the family. Yeah, I mean, she became she and Bill got close to that other family. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had a lot of stuff in common at this point. Mm-hmm. And um, they were told that she passed away. And uh, Jean was wondering why Mary didn't come and say goodbye. And I could not answer that question. Um, so so she, they noticed Jean noticed Mary wasn't showing up. Anymore. Well, they already, you know, after she had that conversation with Mary mm-hmm. about like focus on yourself, she wasn't mm-hmm. seeing the little girl anyway. Mm-hmm. So, had the family up the street not told them that she died, they wouldn't have known that Mary died at all. Okay, and so, until some point, so there was no indication psychically or otherwise, other than the verbal that that Mary had passed away. Um, and it, it's interesting. I mean, that is a good question. It's like why didn't Mary had been able to appear, um, but did not appear right before or at the moment of death or shortly after. And that may just be the way things worked out for her. You know, we, we don't know why some people can do that and other people can't. There's a lot of why that we don't know in these circumstances. Okay. Do they have, uh, do they have any continuing paranormal phenomena at the house? Only occasionally seeing that couple on the, yeah. yeah. There were occasional, I think Gene occasionally got flashes of other, um, you know, uh, other time periods in the house, a little bit of place memory that was just simply in flash, uh, you know, here and there. And um, I, I think that's really because Gene was sensitized to the house at that point. Mm-hmm. Anything else you'd like to mention about this case? You know, the one thing that's really interesting when we're doing investigations is how some cases can surprise you. And this one certainly surprised me. Um, assumptions, you can make assumptions and you can have things in categories, but this is one of the problems I think with the TV ghost hunters stuff too. And a lot of the folks who follow them, they don't know anything about the history of parapsychology. 
or rarely ever know anything about it. And this is a lot of them, not all of them. Fortunately, some of them do. But certainly you wouldn't know that from watching these TV shows at all. Um, and so the ideas that are presented on those shows often are folklore and they're focused on or emphasized by the television production people for the audience, not for accuracy, for folklore purposes. So pop culture folklore is more likely to come out of those shows or be presented in those shows than actual understanding or the, the even spread of what's possible. So I, I think it's important that cases like this illustrate that, number one, you can have more than one phenomena happening in a single place. Um, I have other cases where, you know, I have to call them mixed bag cases because you have normal phenomena, things that are normally explained. You have a haunting. You might have a poltergeist case, you know, some psycho, psychokinetic activity. You might have an apparition. You could have all three. Uh, and it, they may not, they may relate to each other in some way or they may not relate to each other in some way. Uh, in the case of this particular case, no relationship other than the house that Mary lived in that house. That's the only relationship that uh, between the phenomena at that point. So we, we have to kind of look at the what's behind it, who's behind it. Um, what category do these fit in? Do they not fit in any category? Sometimes that it's a little bit unknown. And we have to ask questions throughout. But most importantly, we have to work with living witnesses because without human beings, whether it's the witnesses or people we bring in to pick things up, we got nothing, really. Okay. Um, so where can people go to find out more about you and your work? And is there anything you'd like to plug? Sure. Um, well, first, um, we have courses coming up in May for the, the Ryan Education Center. This will know. be airing in June. But, okay, this is going to uh, air in June, so forget about that. You can edit this well, out. The Or I was going to say, um, the Ryan Education Center has new courses coming up every few months, so you can always... Yeah, I was going to say that if this is airing in June, we're just finishing up some class. We are just finishing up some classes um, at the moment, so um, I will be have been teaching my field investigations class, kind of field investigations 101. We have an advanced class as well as well as a course on uh, anthropology and parapsychology, uh, how psychic experience shows up in other cultures. But we will be offering four-week classes in August, uh, which are, tend to be more fun classes, and it's likely we'll have a course on remote viewing and a couple of other things going on then. And then in the fall, typically we start at uh, the end of September, beginning of October. We have our eight-week classes starting again, and then we'll be offering our Intro to Parapsychology course, and I'll have a number of other courses that I'll be running, uh, as well as John Crute, the executive director. And these are all through the Ryan Education Center, which you can get to at um, the link that you're going to provide, I assume. But it's, yes. uh, you can also go to Ryan, R-H-I-N-E dot org and click on the education link in the upper uh, right corner. And this will take you to the Education Center. Uh, we also encourage people to join the Ryan Research Center to support it. Uh, members get access to a huge media library of lectures and presentations and other things. There are um, virtual events you can take part in, which you get a discount on. If you're a member, you get a discount in classes if you're a member as well. Uh, but otherwise, people can find out about me. Um, at this point, um, I have not had the time to put to my website to rebuild it because it, it got pretty much destroyed a couple of years ago. But folks can find me on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash lloyd.auerbach.author. That's my author page. 
just don't try to friend me. I'm topped out with friends. You can follow that page, but I have that issue thing. too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at prof paranormal or at Lloyd Auerbach. I, I post things there as well. And uh, of course the Ryan center will post things on what I'm doing. Um, and then I have an author page at Amazon. Uh, and uh, at the, the, the book that includes a living, the living apparition case we talked about will be back out. I'm hoping by summer, but certainly over the summer, I will get that back out again, as well as my Mind Over Matter book, which has just went out of print. And we'll have we'll have a link to your author page. And I know that so the book that contains the Living Apparition case is called A Paranormal Casebook. Correct. And there are used copies of it available. I checked on Amazon uh, today. And so we'll have a link to that and then assuming that uh that it that it is out again uh, your new edition is out we'll have a link to that um but in e- either event we'll have a link to your author page so people can see all great. of your books in print that's great yeah this around this time i think uh that this is airing uh, uh our second novel in the rainy day investigation series mystery it's a paranormal mystery series that i've written with rich hosek and arnold rudnick that second book should be out our first book is called Near Death. The second book will be called After Life. And that's something that we didn't mention, but you also uh, are a novelist in addition to being a parapsychologist. Right. Yeah, this our first for my first foray into the whole thing. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, Lloyd Auerbach, thank you so much for being with us. And on behalf of all the Mysterious World listeners, thank you very much. Thank you, Jimmy. So, Jimmy, anything else we should say before we go today? I think today's mystery was absolutely fascinating. Uh, Based on what the witnesses reported and what Lloyd and his team experienced, it sounds like the house had both what parapsychologists would call a haunting, meaning a memory, uh, a place memory laid down when people were still alive, and an apparition, meaning the appearance of someone without their body, only in this case, it was a living apparition. In fact, the appearance of a woman who was living just up the street and who was revisiting her childhood home and one of the favorite times in her life. That would place it broadly within the category of phantasms of the living, a reported phenomenon that has been the subject of parapsychological study for around 140 years. And specifically, after the change in Mary's pain meds, it could have been specifically a cry for help, as in other crisis apparitions, which we'll be talking about in future episodes. Whether you think this was what was happening in the house, of course, is up to you to decide. But regardless of what you end up concluding, Mary was a real person who really did live and die. And so I'd invite listeners to pray for Mary and for everyone who's in a similar situation as they near the end of life particularly for people who are in crisis and trying to reach out, even mentally, for help. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listener and viewer? We'll have a link to Lloyd Auerbach's uh, author page on Amazon, also a link to his book, A Paranormal Casebook, which is the one where he has a chapter devoted to the living apparition of Marin County. We'll also have links to both print and electronic editions of the two volumes of the collection Phantasms of the Living from the British Society for Psychical Research. We'll also have Lloyd's uh, Facebook page and links to the Ryan Research Center and the Ryan Education Center. We'll have a link to his environmental hell case where it turned out all of the 
seemingly paranormal phenomena had natural explanations. We'll have a link to information about housewarming parties, which really did, going back to the Middle Ages, have a paranormal aspect. You did warm the house to try to get rid of any bad spirits as you were moving in. Uh, Also, um, we'll have links to a couple of Ajax White Tornado commercials. Awesome. So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Uh, This week, we have an update theme for our headlines. We're going to update a couple of previous episodes. Back in episode 59 on mind control parasites, we talked about little bitty microorganisms that can affect your mental function. And in particular, we talked about a parasite that needs to get into the uh, digestive system of a cat in order to reproduce. The, uh, the, this particular parasite is called Toxoplasma gondii, and it, it has a really interesting life cycle. It gets into rats and make them like the smell of cat urine, so they get near cats. But since cats hang out in people's homes, people can get Toxoplasma gondii too, and it can affect human mental function, which we talked about in that episode. Well, now it turns out that uh, Toxoplasma gondii may have another effect on humans. It may make them more attractive, which you could see how it would how that would facilitate in its spreading from one human to another and then hopefully at some point getting back into a cat. On the other hand, it could be the other way around. It could be that more attractive people engage in certain kinds of socialization more and get infected with Toxoplasma gondii more. So uh, the correlate, as they say, correlation is not causation. It may be that the parasite makes you look attractive, or it may be that you get the parasite because you look attractive. Either way, you can check out an article we'll have a link to. Well, if you're, it, the good news is if you're single, it doesn't hurt to get a cat. Well, there are some downsides to having Toxoplasma gondii, like getting okay. in more car wrecks. Oh, um, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so for our second headline, we're updating episode 199 on the inflation that the government causes. And we'll have a link to a video of Warren Buffett. Uh, talking about inflation. Warren Buffett is considered one of the most successful investors ever and one of the most successful investors of our time. And he, in the video, discusses inflation and endorses the view that I endorsed that the best currency is a stable currency that doesn't either inflate or deflate. Excellent. Very good. Interesting. All right. Well, that does it for us this time. Now it's your turn. What are your theories about the haunted house of Marin County and the living apparition that seemed to be appearing there? You can let us know what you think online by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. Send a tweet to at MYS underscore world or join the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. Or finally, call our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. And I also want to thank Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work uh, they do on all of our episodes. Recently, I saw some feedback on my YouTube channel where someone had gone who was a longtime audio listener, and he finally decided, oh, well, I'll, I guess I'll check out the video and see what it's like. And he said, wow, what a difference it makes. The stuff that Oasis Studio 7 is doing really adds a lot 
to the audio presentation. So be sure and go by youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken to check out uh, the video version of the podcast. And while you're there, I am trying to grow my channel. So I'd appreciate it if you uh, subscribe and hit the bell notification so that YouTube is forced to tell you whenever I have a new video out, whether it's Mysterious World or one of the other videos I do. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next weekend, uh, in particular, next Sunday is Juneteenth, which is a holiday in America commemorating the emancipation of American slaves. So next Friday, we'll be having an episode on Harriet Tubman, a former slave who was a conductor on the Underground Railroad and who also reported receiving visions from God. Excellent. Folks, be sure to get your very own Mysterious World t-shirt, mug, and more in our merchandise shop at sqpn.com slash merch. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the Mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Until next time, Jimmy Yakin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bethanelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Star Wars. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash Star Wars.